Welcome to The Cauldron, a podcast hosted by Ed Bolton Greer, the creator of Ravensvale. In each episode, Ed will have free-flowing conversations about horror, life, culture, and personal growth. Expect to hear from storytellers, authors, horror experts, life gurus, thought leaders, and influencers. The Cauldron is a place where concoctions of a lot of ideas are brewed down to potions that are sometimes important and useful, sometimes eccentric and bizarre, but always just what you need. The Cauldron podcast may contain explicit language and thematic elements not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Well, hey there, family. Welcome to the Ravencell Cauldron. I'm your host, Ed Bolden Greer, and I'm joined today by my guest co-host, Jacob Garner. Hello, hello. This is the sixth and final episode of our series, Jacob's Haunting. In this series, we've been looking at five of the darkest urban legends of Appalachia. If you've been following the series, you also know that my co-host Jacob suffers from phasmophobia. For those of you who don't know, phasmophobia refers explicitly to an intense abnormal fear of ghosts, but the word is also commonly used to describe an individual who has an intense fear of the supernatural and the paranormal. Jacob, today is a momentous episode for Small Raven Media and the entire Ravensville Podcast Network. It's a little bittersweet, honestly. How so? Well, first, today's recording will be the last recording we'll be doing in this podcast office. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're moving uh, everything to the new office later today or tonight, right? Yeah, today uh, I decided I was going to get here early just to sit at the desk here and reminisce about this place. It's hard to believe that six months ago we launched everything and we've already outgrown this space. You know, actually, I remember when we first walked into this space before uh, we moved everything in. Like you brought the entire staff over in little groups just to see the new podcast office. And I know people like often say this, but it seems like so long ago and just a few days ago at the same time. Yeah, Jared and I always believed we'd eventually need a bigger space, but I couldn't imagine it happening in just six months. Yeah. Honestly, I'm excited about the new space, but I sure am going to miss the coziness of this space. Yeah. Yeah, me too. The the room actually made me feel like an average-sized human being. <laughs> Jacob, you already know this about me, but the listeners may not. I absolutely hate moving. <laughs> yeah. Um, Jared and I are looking for a bigger house, and I already dread that move. Moving the entire podcast in one day has really kind of stressed me out. But so far, it's been kind of painless. Um, a big shout out to our renovation team, Varick Osgood and Tracy Cornwell from Oh So Good Services. They came in, consulted on our wants and needs, and the next thing we knew, they magically transformed the space into exactly what our vision was in just a few days. For the Knoxville locals, I'll put their contact information in the episode notes. And Jacob, this is the last episode of the Jacob's Haunting series. Womp womp. It seems like the time has just flown by. I've really enjoyed working on the series with you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've I've had a blast, honestly. We've got a lot of really great feedback about it. I know. I know. I'm going to miss it. Um, Jacob, uh, you know I love putting you on the spot a little, right? Mm, yep. <laughs> well, I've mentioned this a little bit before to you. 
And I've talked to our executive producer and our talent recruitment specialists, and everybody agrees. With all the great feedback we've gotten from the public, we think you should become the official Cauldron's co-host, not just a guest. Really? Yep. Oh, guys. And with that, we've got another big announcement. Jacob, why don't you tell them about this? Yeah, yeah, actually, absolutely. Uh, We are proud to announce that the Ravensvale Cauldron has our own channel on all podcast platforms now. (laughs) Just search for Ravensvale Cauldron and hit that follow button so you can stay up to date on all of our upcoming episodes with me, Jacob, your co-host. And me, you know, the other person. But more importantly, Jacob, (laughs) your new co-host. Jacob, we're really just honored that you would continue to be part of the cauldron with us and we're so excited about how much we're going to get to scare you in the future um i'm glad to be here not so much for the latter though (laughs) family today we're taking a moment to talk to you again about a very important issue that affects millions of people worldwide Uh, we're talking about human trafficking and slavery Yeah, like we uh, said in the previous podcast, January is National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month, a time when we raise awareness about these heinous crimes and work together to prevent them. Human trafficking is a form of modern-day slavery where people are exploited through force, fraud, or coercion in various forms of labor or commercial sex. It's a global problem that does not discriminate. It affects men, women, and children of all ages and backgrounds. But together, we can make a difference. We can educate ourselves about the signs of human trafficking. We can support organizations that work tirelessly to rescue victims and prosecute offenders. We can advocate for stronger laws and regulations to protect victims and prevent these crimes. And most importantly, we can spread the word and raise awareness. This month, let's stand together against human trafficking and slavery. Let's be the voice for those who can't speak for themselves If you would like more information about where you can find resources and information, look on the Ravensville website. Remember, your actions matter. You have the power to make a difference. Together, we can end human trafficking and slavery. Before we dive into this episode, I want to let you all know that next week's episode, Jacob and I will be talking about the Sasquatch. Oh yeah, Sasquatch. That's... Mr. Squatch. Yeah, or Mr. Sasquatch. Or, <laughs> uh, today we'll be talking about uh, one of the most famous urban legends of Appalachia. In fact, um, I found references about it around the country and, and a couple uh, abroad, but we're going to be talking about the hook. Yeah, the hook. The hook or the hookman killer or the bloody hook is a common Appalachian urban legend that involves a murderous man with a hook for a hand or just a hook who attacks couples in parked cars. There are many different versions of the story, but the basic premise is that a couple hears a news report about an escaped killer with a hook, and then they find his hook attached to their car door, or they see scratches on their car door or blood all over the car or something like that. The legend is thought to date back to the mid-1950s and has been used as a mortality tale to warn teenagers about the dangers of parking. (laughs) Uh, Today, we'll look at the history and mystery of the bloody hook. Jacob, did you do your homework? Oh, yes, I did. Why don't you tell us what you found? All right. So, released in 1991, Hook was a movie starring Robin Williams. No, I'm joking. (laughs) 
<laughs> so that's why we love you. <laughs> the name the hook, the body hook, or the hook man, it refers to a popular urban legend rather than an Appalachian folk story in its entirely, but it mainly grew in popularity and word of mouth here in Appalachia. The tale has various versions, but the basic premise is typically consistent, like what Ed said earlier. The story often involves a young couple parked in a secluded area, usually a lover's lane. Lover's lane. Oh, yeah. They hear news of either word of mouth from their parent or guardians or friends that are also out in the area, or they hear a report on the radio about an escaped mental patient or a murderer with a hook for a hand who is said to be in their vicinity. As the couple becomes increasingly frightened, they decide to leave and head home. When they arrive, they discover a bloody hook hanging from the door handle of their car. The implication is that the hook-handed killer was trying to get into their vehicle, and they narrowly escaped a dangerous encounter. Um, a lot of different variations take place of this story, which I will go over, but more importantly... You have your own variation of the bloody hook. I do. It's one of the stories, as we've said earlier in the series, it's one of the stories that I did at um, Appalachian, Appalachian Horror, Horror Fest. Fest. Yeah. Yep. Uh, I will. I will interject here. There's a. There's several movies that have paid homage to the hook, not directly, but but used it as a reference. A scary movie had a hook. Yeah. The, the 2000 version of Scary Movie. The 2000. Six version of See No Evil. The killer used a hook, uh, mm. and the the writers paid homage to that that uh, urban legend. And then, lastly, uh, lastly, uh, I know what you did last summer. The nineteen ninety seven movie uh, paid homage to the hook as well. Oh yeah, and when I was doing my research, I found just a ridiculous amount of callbacks and references to this story. Uh, a couple of different things that I saw was. There was a popular TV show I'm sure many of the listeners have either seen or heard of called Supernatural, where they chase down the specter of the hook. Uh, there's a couple of different movies where the killer or the monster uses a hook to kill somebody and a direct callback to this story. So it's very much ingrained in the spooky sphere, for sure. Absolutely. And your rendition of it was fantastic. I highly recommend if anybody wants to hear uh, Ed's version of the Bloody Hook. It is on our podcast network. Yep, it's on the uh, our podcast channel, Ravensville Coven. We have two uh, of the stories from the Horror Fest out there now, and we're getting ready to post the re remaining stories. And I won't spoil anything about it, but one of the characters' name is also Jacob, and I believe you did that on purpose. Purposeful. I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's fantastic. I highly recommend you guys listen to it because I will be spoiling uh, the premise overall of the bloody hook. Um, I will. I will point out uh, one of the things you mentioned. Uh, some of the other movies and, and some of the history behind it. One of the things that I found most fascinating is that it may not be one man, mm. but it may be a spirit that possesses someone. Ooh. Yeah. That's also that it, that it can jump. <laughs> yeah. Just think about that when you go to bed tonight, Jacob. Oh, well, see, that was the crabby part. The thing that scares me the most about the premise of the hook or the hook man 
is it really preys on the idea that, you know, the real scariest thing is just other human beings. Mm -hmm. So I actually kind of got a little spooked out because I was doing the research alone in my house at night. So, but the research overall was fun. But anyway, (laughs) urban legends similar to the hook man or the bloody hook often serve as cautionary tales to express or share societal fears, particularly in this case related to young people engaging activities deemed risky or taboo. Like necking? Oh, yeah. During my research, I found a term that is a little dated, usually from the 50s. It's called necking, which is making out. Making out. Oh, yeah. While it is challenging to pinpoint a specific origin for which all of the stories of the hook or the hook man is based off of, it has become a pervasive and enduring part of contemporary folklore. The legend continues to be shared and adapted in various forms that we will go over later in the episode amongst different communities and cultures, but especially in the conservative South starting in the 1950s and 60s. So when this folklore or this spooky story really started to pick up steam, seems to be widespread by 1959 here in America. The interesting thing to note is that a story like this was spread far and wide before social media. This was very much a scary story to tell your friend before they went out with their friends or boyfriends or girlfriends. The first known publication of this story of the Bloody Hook or the Hook Man occurred on an exact date that we can actually find, November the 8th, 1960, when a reader uh, wrote a letter telling the story of the hook man was reprinted in a very popular kind of conversational editorial called Dear Abby. It was a popular advice column. So back then it was very common. Instead of having a radio show, you would write in letters to a newspaper or a magazine and somebody would publish whatever letter you had and then they would talk about it later on in their editorial. Dear Abby was extremely popular in America back in the day. And this is what the letter said. Dear Abby, if you are interested in teenagers, you will print this story. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it doesn't matter because it served its purpose for me. A fellow and his date pulled into their favorite lover's lane to listen to the radio and do a little necking. The music was interrupted by an announcer who said that there was an escaped convict in the area who had served time for both rape and robbery. He was described as having a hook instead of a right hand. The couple became frightened and drove away. But when the boy took his girl home, he went around to open up the car door for her. Then he saw a hook on the door handle. I will never part to make out as long as I live. I hope this does the same for other kids written by somebody who just wrote their name as Jeanette. What do you think of that story, Dr. B? Well, <laughs> I wonder what Jeanette looked like. This kind of this letter reads to me as like a concerned mother who wants to be like, hello, fellow kids. I also used to go out and do some necking, but I will never do it again. I don't think throughout history we've ever got teenagers to stop necking. Yeah, I know, you know? right? I don't think. I, not even this story got them to stop. Oh, I yeah. mean, let's face it. 
if it feels good, they're going to do it. Exactly. Imagine when you were a teenager. All um, right. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> and do you think the story would have stopped you? It didn't. I knew the story. My grandfather told it to me all the time. <laughs> it didn't stop me. Well, see, I never heard of it. But even still, 16, 17-year-old Jacob, if he heard that there was an escaped convict somewhere in the area, I would just be like— 27-year-old Jacob. <laughs> yeah, I would have been like, hey, roll up the windows and lock the door. But anyway. <laughs> Let's get busy. <laughs> yeah. So my favorite part of this research was to find a bunch of the alternate endings to it. And here are some of them. After leaving the secluded spot, the couple arrives home and discovers the bloody hook hanging from the car door handle. Or dum, dum, dum. exactly, or it's like buried into the roof, like he was uh, the Terminator in Terminator Two, and he jumped on the roof of the car and it got ripped off, type of thing. Right? The realization that the hook-handed killer was attempting to get into the car adds a chilling twist to the story. In some versions, the couple narrowly escapes the hook-handed killer, but later learns that the killer was never caught. The ending leaves a sense of lingering danger and adds to the suspense. Again, since the killer never got caught or stopped, you can't go make out with whoever you want to in Lover's Lane because he might, might be there. Might be there. <laughs> uh, there's a little bit of deeper lore that kind of exists depending on who is telling a story or who wrote it. There is a little bit of a revelation of the Hookman's origin. Some versions reveal the origin of the hook, suggesting that it belonged to a former lover or a spouse of one of the characters. That twist obviously adds a psychological element to the story, making it more complex and in a way more insidious than just some random maniac going around with a hook killing people. There's the more supernatural haunting presence of the hook, in a couple of different versions that I was able to find, the couple begins to experience strange occurrences or feels a haunting presence after the encounter. The ending where it's more supernatural plays on more of a psychological impact of the traumatic experience, suggesting that the hook-handed killer's influence lingers. Kind of going off of what you were saying earlier, that it was like a, some sort of evil spirit hopping from host to host. There's a little bit of silver lining, happy endings that I found, too. The couple may be saved by the timely arrival of the boys in blue who scare off the hook-handed killer. This ending provides a more optimistic outcome, emphasizing the role of authorities in ensuring safety. Again, if this is like a moral story where it's saying, hey, don't go out and get some hanky-panky on. Also, the cops are really awesome and they saved you guys, so you should also listen to them, too, as well as your parents, please. Then it takes a darker turn. We have a lot of renditions where there is fatal consequences. With some of the darker turns, the couple being found dead at the scene or meeting a tragic end shortly after the encounter with the hook-handed killer. This variation adds a sense of inevitability and hopelessness to the story, which in a way is a lot more bleak and a little bit more scarier to me. Yeah, I've also heard a version where the boyfriend gets out to go pee in the woods and then all of a sudden his bloody body is thrown onto the windshield. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Classic jump scare. Yeah. My uh, one question being me about some of these stories that end with both members of the couple being killed is who told the story? Yeah. <laughs> and there were no survivors. 
Uh, how did they know where that it was the hook? Yeah, and exactly. Not just some serial killer. In one of the accounts I found that ends pretty tragically, the man leaves to confront the figure, be the big macho man, but then he suddenly disappears into the darkness. Thinking uh, that his date just imagined it, the man returns to the car only to find that the woman has been brutally murdered with a hook embedded in her back. Yeah, I've heard that version too. There's another version where the girl is disturbed many times after her boyfriend searches out in the darkness for the hook-handed killer. And while she's waiting in the car, she keeps hearing a rhythmic and aggressive thumping on the roof. She eventually exits after overcoming her fear, and then she sees the escaped patient sitting on the roof and banging the man's severed head on top of it. Yeah, I've heard I've heard another version of that same one where the boyfriend's uh, body was suspended from a tree oh, and yeah. the blood was dripping on the top of the roof. Ugh. Yeah. I found that one too. Uh, that's actually the next variation, but it gets a little bit more graphic because it says that the woman exits the car after hearing something like rain drip on it, but it's a summer night. So yep. she's like, what is going on? Only to find out that the man's butchered body is suspended upside down from a tree with his fingernails scraping against the roof and bleeding and He's really mutilated. His rib cage is ripped open. It's really, really disgusting. Yummy. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Uh, another variation of that one. To go with the whole big reveal of the female leaving the car only to find the body, there was one that I found that was pretty dark where she runs behind a tree because she's scared only to find out that the guy has been nailed to it, almost crucified. Then it just ends. <laughs> she yeah. just finds it and that's the end of the, the story. There's a version, uh, a little Hollywood version. I don't think I've ever seen it in a movie, but I've seen it in a lot of movies where she she realizes he's killed and she starts running through the forest and the killer's after her too. Oh man. The most Hollywood version I found for the ending <laughs> of this classic story is that the boyfriend decides to head off on foot to find someone to help with the problem. Of yeah, the it's just a few miles down the road. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, just outside of town where nobody can hear you scream. <laughs> so the man leaves after like some car troubles or something like that. And as he's off on foot, the woman stays behind in the car. She then falls asleep waiting for somebody to come, but only wakes up to see a hideous person looking at her through the window. I kind of imagine like William Shatner's character in Twilight Zone looking out onto the airplane wing and seeing that monster or yeah. something. I don't know about you, though. I, I, If I were her, I don't know that I could fall asleep. That's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, here I am. And, no, I couldn't fall asleep. Well, maybe, and I can fall asleep anywhere. Maybe the necking was just so, so intense. So yeah. It just knocked her out. But when she... Reaches to lock the door. The hideous figure can't get in. But then, to her horror, he reveals as he brings one hand up. He's got the severed head <laughs> of her date. And then the car keys hanging off of the hook in the other one. And then that's the end of the story. Yep. <laughs> Heard that one. So, there's lots and lots of versions of this. Oh, yeah. But, and there's lots of uh, things that we could... Uh, say or the origin story of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, people even there, there was a, a Chicago mobster, Harry Alman, I believe his name was A L E M O N, um, who was a feared 
enforcer and, and, and he would kill people in their cars, beat them to death, basically. It Jesus. wasn't actually a hook. He was a boxer, and that's how he got his name. Nice. Um, but there, there's actually a real story that um, you were telling me about that is the basis, probably. Uh, you said it was in the 40s? Yeah, it actually started in the 40s. So after doing some research, there never really was a direct story I could find that said escaped mental patient with a hook for a hand. But like a lot of common folklore stories and urban legends, usually there is a grain of truth that occurs with an event that then gets co-opted into a cautionary tale of some sort. The actual uh, information that I was able to find that linked the first sort of descriptions of what we now see as the formula for the hook or the bloody hook man killer. An actual documented case where the police investigated it. Multiple cases, yeah. actually. So it is known as the Tex Arcana Moonlight Murders, mm -hmm. also known, spookily, as the Phantom Killer case. It occurred in the spring of 1946 on February the 22nd and continued till about May 3rd in and around the Texarkana area, which straddles the border of Texas and Arkansas. The killer or killers responsible for the crime were never definitively identified or captured, and the case remains one of the most mysterious unsolved string of murders in American criminal history. I'm going to go over some of the basic facts of the Moonlight Murders. I will give it a little bit of a warning or you know, disclaimer that some of the descriptions are going to be kind of gory, and this actually happened. Yeah, so. this is a real case. Uh, the victims were Jimmy Hollis and Mary Larry. Yeah. L-A-R-E-Y. Oh, actually, it was a Jimmy. Jim. So I'm sorry. Jimmy Hollis and Mary Larry. Yes. L-A-R-E-Y. Larray, I guess is how you would pronounce that. We're just going to call them Hollis and Larray. That sounds fun. So couple of parallels that you will see in the bloody hook and in these cases. The victims were couples who were attacked while parked in isolated areas, such as the aforementioned Lover's, Lover's Lane. Again, like Ed said, the first known victims were Jimmy Hollis and Mary Jane LeRae. They were attacked on February the 22nd, 1946, but luckily, both survived the assault. The next victims will not be as lucky. Hmm. The attack took place on that night, on February the 22nd, they were parked on a remote road known as Richmond Road, a very popular hangout spot for teenagers to park, turn the lights off, and get the necking. On the Texas side. On the Texas side. <laughs> While the couple were parked in their car, a man wearing a white hood, described as a simple sack cloth with eye holes cut out of it, approached them. The assailant ordered them out of the car and directed... Jimmy Hollis to remove his pants, oddly enough. Mm. I would assume that they were already removed, but whatever. <laughs> Hollis was then struck in the head with a blunt object, likely a pistol that he carried, and then began to bleed profusely. And in fact, Miss LeRae actually thought that he got shot. The sound of the gun hitting his head fractured his skull. Oh. Yeah, and she thought, oh man, he just shot him in the head. And then, obviously, the subsequent head wound made her think that as well. Despite having his head literally cracked open like an egg, Jimmy Hollis managed to fight off the attacker and escape to a nearby farmhouse owned by the Booker family, 
where he sought help by calling the police. Then the uh, father of the Booker family actually followed him back to the car with a shotgun. So that's that good old Southern hospitality right there. When law enforcement responded to the scene, Jimmy Hollis was taken to the hospital for treatment for his fractured skull, which he stayed in the hospital for about a week and a half afterwards. Miss LeRae, unfortunately, was reported to have been physically assaulted, but not as severely as Hollis. There were some implications that there was some sexual assault, unfortunately, that took place. But due to the time period that this crime took place, that obviously was not published widespread. Both Jimmy and Mary uh, survived the attack, but Hollis obviously got the worst of it, uh, according to how bad that his skull was attacked. She suffered minor bruises and lacerations around her neck, but the next victims were definitely not as fortunate. Let's go back. I I still, you know, uh, when this was happening in the 40s, it, it would be odd to demand his pants and there not be some kind of sexual abuse, but it's something that the police probably wouldn't put in their reports. Yeah, yeah. The accounts that are extremely detailed actually come from Jimmy and Mary later on in their life when they would be interviewed about it. And then a couple of books were published. I don't remember the titles off the top of my head right now, but there was definitely this weird dangerous and sexual motivation that you'll see was a huge inspiration for the next couple of attacks. So the second attack happened not even that long afterwards. And you'll see that the brutality and the violence definitely jumps up a notch. Yeah, he's escalating. Oh, yeah. So the second attack occurred on March 24th of the same year. This one targeted Richard Griffin and Pollyann Moore. The attack took place that night on the 24th. Richard and Polly were parked on a secluded lover's lane. There you go again. Yep. (laughs) On Richmond Road, similar to the location of the first attack. So this killer obviously was operating in this area and knew if I want some victims that will be alone, I need to go to Richmond Road. And it sounds like as a serial killer, this was his uh, M.O. Yeah, it was like his hunting ground. uh, Some of the investigations that I read suggested that he was a local that maybe had been wronged or humiliated as a younger man in that area, and now he exacts revenge on these people that are there having a better experience than he probably did. The assailant approached the couple in their parked car and ordered them out. Both Griffin and Moore were then brutally attacked with a blunt object believed to be a heavy iron instrument a uh, couple of investigations that I read made it seem like maybe the guy didn't actually have a mask on this time and that he approached the car with a tire iron claiming, hey, I have a flat tire. Can you guys help me? That would have been enough for the two people to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll help you out and get out of the car. But then he struck them multiple times over the head, leading to their deaths. Uh, it wasn't until the following morning a passerby discovered the crime scene. Mm-hmm. Richard Griffin's body was found outside of the car near the driver's side, while Pollyann Moore's body was found inside the vehicle. So it's theorized that when the attack started, she rushed back to the car and tried to lock it. Or she was in the car because she, during that time, the woman probably wouldn't have got out of the car to help with the tire. Yeah. So she probably wasn't, you know, even aware until he came over to kill her. Yeah. Yeah. Law enforcement investigated the crime scene and found evidence of the very apparent violent struggle. 
This incident, after happening so shortly after the first one, intensified the fear in that Texarkana community. The murders of Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore put everybody on high alert. And this is when you first start to get the grumblings of do not go out to Lover's Lane. And then as the word of mouth spread, I'm sure family members and friends would call other friends all over the Southeast and out West and saying, hey, if you have a teenage daughter or a teenage son, tell them do not go to Lover's Lane. I know you're already telling them not to do it, but now there's a legitimate reason it could be life or death for them. Right. But the Texarkana police definitely increased more uh, police activity in the area driving around. This is also when you start to get more accounts of people being harassed by the police the moment they would park anywhere near Lover's Lane. I'm sure the parents rejoiced as a result of the increased scrutiny. But there was a legitimate concern that there was a active serial killer on the loose in that area. Obviously, the increased police presence in the area was completely warranted because both Richard and Polly were killed as a result of that attack. So now this Texarkana phantom killer has a body count and it will continue to grow because on April the 14th, 1946, Betty Jo Booker was attacked and killed with her boyfriend, Paul Martin. Her companion uh, actually was found two miles away against a tree. Ooh. Hmm. Oh, yeah. So they're not 100% sure if it took place on the 13th of April or the 14th, either or. Betty Jo Booker and Paul Martin were parked on Lover's Lane, again, near that North Park Richmond Road. The assailant approached the couple in their parked car and ordered them out, similar MO to the previous one. They were then both attacked with, guess what, a blunt object. In this case, a lot of people theorized that it was like a flashlight of some sort, like a heavy-duty flashlight, not like a plastic one, kind of like a mag light or something like yep. that. The attacker shot Betty Jo Booker four times, but somehow this tough woman uh, ended up getting out of the car where she was then shot in the back and then the back of the head. Paul Martin had been shot four times as well through the nose, through the ribs from behind, denoting that he was running away and in the right hand and then in the back of the neck. Law enforcement responded to this scene and found Betty Jo Booker's body. The investigation was actually published and revealed that Booker had been sexually assaulted before being murdered. Again, adding to the fear for any parents in the area of where are my teenage kids at right now. And now they found Martin's body four miles away? Two miles. Two away. miles away. Yeah. He he started running or he was dragged yeah. away. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. They don't really know. There was a couple of... Uh, signs that he was dragging his feet and there was some blood on the dirt and everything like that. So they're theorizing that during the attack, he was more focused on, you know, assaulting the woman and he crawled away. But eventually he either succumbed to his wounds that he sus like sustained during the initial attack or even more horrifying, the killer just took his time waiting to go over there and kill him. Yeah. This put the Texarkana community in that area, obviously on DEFCON 5, for being scared. The residents became increasingly cautious, and this actually led to a rise in a bunch of vigilantism, where people would be driving around, and if they thought somebody was acting suspicious as they were driving to like a lover's lane or secluded area with their friends, 
there was an increased amount of people being assaulted or being threatened with weapons. In fact, there was one case that I read that I thought was really like could have gone a very bad way where a sheriff in the area notices a car parked by itself and he goes over to investigate to make sure that they're okay. He was in an undercover police cruiser and he was off duty so he didn't have like traditional police uniform and badge on when he walks up to the car he asks the couple inside hey you guys know that there's a killer out here on the loose right and they went yeah we're fully aware of that who are you and he goes oh and he shows his badge and says i am a you know police officer i'm off duty i'm just checking in on you guys to which the guy is reported to have said well it's a good thing you told me who you are i have a handgun pointed at you right now so everybody is on high alert, very high alert. And it's Texas. So, you know, at this point, everybody's carrying a gun on them wherever they go out. I actually heard a story similar to that, and it may be about the same thing, but it, it was actually that the killer was in the driver's side and his victim, the male victim, was in the trunk, had been killed and put in the trunk, and he had a gun pointed on the girl. Oh, and um, that's how they caught him mm. in this in the version where they caught him. Oh, so they probably heard about that story and were like, "Okay, yeah. I want to have a happy ending yeah. to this um, pseudo happy ending, not for the guy in the trunk, obviously." And I know that there's one other killing, but it comes to mind for me that there may have been copycat killers across the country as well, because there's other cases of things like that happening at Lover's Lanes. Um, but I'll, I'll let you go ahead. But I just wanted to point that out that, you know, with serial killings, there's often copycat killers. Oh, for so. sure. Well, and you have to think, uh, put your mind of like a sociopath that wants to kill people. But you're not sure how you're going to do it and get away with it. Then you start hearing accounts of, oh, wait, yeah, there's willing victims that drive themselves to secluded areas outside of the city limits with nobody around. This was before cell phones. I mean, if you heard about these reports and you had those sort of inclinations, you would probably think like any guy that, you know, watched the infomercial for the clap on, clap off lights. They thought to themselves, well, why didn't I think of that? Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, uh, just just to put this out there. Uh, Ravensville Cauldron and, and Jacob and I are not advocating that anyone do that. <laughs> yeah. You will get caught. Don't now. go kill people at Lover's Lanes. Is there, is, is there still Lover's Lanes? I, I don't I don't know about it. There them. was one near my house growing up. Growing up, but yeah. you know, you're old now. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm <laughs> ancient. I'm an ancient 28. Well, somebody out there, go to our Facebook page and tell us what kids do these days. <laughs> I, I mean... I've heard of makeout parties, but I think that's that's like the last generation. This generation, Gen Z, probably has to be worried about like the Snapchat killer coming through your screen, like the grudge True, or something. Like the grudge, yeah. <laughs> the final murder took place on the night of May third. The victims, being a husband and wife, one survived, one unfortunately met their untimely end. It was Virgil and Katie Starks. That night, Virgil was sitting on his front porch of his farmhouse reading the newspaper while Katie was doing whatever in the house, located in a very rural area. So unlike the Lover's Lane, where they're in a vehicle parked and secluded, this was a secluded farmhouse, a classic example of like you can drive for two miles before you reach your neighbor type of situation. So even though it's not the typical MO hunting ground of picking people in a vehicle, it's still very secluded in a rural area. 
The assailant approached the farmhouse and fired multiple shots into the house. They thought originally it was somebody just attacking them for no apparent reason. So when Katie came out, she realized that Virgil had been fatally wounded, shot while he was reading the newspaper, straight through the newspaper. Katie said that she walked out through the front door and saw Virgil stand up before slumping into his chair. The attacker then entered the house, physically assaulted Katie before fleeing the scene. But Katie, despite her injuries, managed to contact the police and seek help. This is actually what she did, and I mean, kudos to Katie. She's a tough, tough woman. Not only does she get physically assaulted and watch her husband get murdered in front of her, she then runs about 800 meters through the woods, all right, not by road, but through the woods after being attacked to then get to her sister and her brother-in-law's house. She then immediately says to them, Virgil's dead, somebody killed him, call the police. And in the most classic Southern <laughs> turn of events, the brother-in-law stands out on his front porch and fires a shotgun twice into the air to alert the other neighbors that there's something that they need to gather about and talk to. Yeah, in remote areas, they have signals like that. So I can see that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, they... Run back to the house. Unfortunately, Virgil is already dead at the scene, but the killer was nowhere to be found. Now, interestingly enough, even though this killer has consistently gotten away with multiple murders and attacks now, the investigation kind of hits a stone wall. The killer doesn't operate in the area anymore, and this was his last known sighting. Now, is it a copycat killer? I kind of lean that maybe it was, mainly because it didn't follow the stalking of the car being parked somewhere. This was more of like a remote attack. Any of the reports I found didn't indicate that Katie or Virgil had like wronged anybody, owed money right. to the mob that would carry out a hit. So it kind of leads me to believe that it was the same guy. But then again, we just have no idea. Katie Starks's description of him said that this killer was wearing a mask, like a sackcloth, like the first attack, uh, where the survivors were able to at least get a good look at the guy. But as far as any other descriptions to say that he was the exact same person, not quite lining up perfect, you know? Yeah. If you've studied serial killers at all, uh, one of the things that happens is that they, they emerge and they have one pattern and they'll develop from that pattern they'll develop uh, their their modus uh, of operations and uh, it sounds like this guy if, if it was the same guy uh just started killing just going wild with yeah it. which also begs the question why did it stop um i would say that he probably uh, moved on somewhere else and those cases just have never been connected well too and the sad part about it is is that the last two attacks, he starts to develop a pattern of, you know, sexually assaulting the women. This is the 40s. So maybe if he stopped killing, right, he may have continued being like a serial rapist. And as we know, the stigma around sexual assault survivors, maybe it just never got reported. But this yeah. guy still was being a scumbag everywhere else. It should be noted, too that the reason why it was so difficult to catch this guy was it was the 40s. The forensic evidence was just not there at the time to connect hair fibers or fingerprints perfectly, you know. And they were really chasing 
a ghost. This yep. guy would operate and then disappear. And he somehow and, always masked his identity. And it looks like I would assume that the few times he didn't mask his identity, he made sure that nobody could give a description of him because he murdered them. Yeah, he was operating in remote areas. So I, he didn't really, you know, have to, to worry about it. Like you said, he was a ghost. Yeah, exactly. There was actually a composite sketch of the suspect that was created based on the witness descriptions of the people who survived. But it wasn't very useful because most of the composite sketches that I found showed a guy wearing a hood with holes cut in it. So. Yeah. Uh, the one that I saw of his face was pretty generic, like it could have been anybody. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And of course, rampant speculation in the 40s. Everybody was like, it's some crazy African-American man in his 30s going around killing people. Right. The Texarkana Moonlight murders have still remained unsolved. It is a cold case. The theories about the identity of the killer or killers have persisted for decades. While some believe that the crimes may have been committed by a single individual, others suggest the possibility of, like what Ed said, copycat crimes. But despite extensive investigations and public interest, the Texarkana murder case still to this day has no definitive answer as to who perpetrated it or why. Obviously, there are quite a few exposés and stories where people make their assumptions of who he was. There were a long list of suspects. I don't know if you read some of them, but do you know which one really stuck out to me that I thought was kind of spooky? Which one? There was uh, an account of a German POW, okay? Mm, yeah. So the war had ended in Europe, but there were POWs that were brought to the United States, usually because they had some sort of intelligence or some sort of skill set that then could be useful later. This is different than Operation Paperclip for my history buffs out there. This guy actually was a German prisoner of war. He was a 29-year-old man. He escaped from his prison in the United States in and around this area. And even though nobody was able to really find out who he was, one of the crimes that he was charged with during the Second World War was aggravated rape. Yeah. Some people theorize that the reason the killing stopped is that he was caught. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he was captured by the military police, but they had no idea that he was actually perpetrating these murders. They just thought, okay, cool, we found the guy that ran off on Yes, us. they had no idea he was the bloody hook. So, Jacob, um, I, we can't deny the fact that there was a killer oh, yeah. uh, that these stories are based on. Uh, the widespread and rampant urban legend about that killer, you know, we, we've discussed that it could be a number of reasons that it spread so widely across the country. Uh, what are your final thoughts on the issue? My final thoughts, the real-life murders that took place in that Texarkana area were used and co-opted as the Bloody Hook or the Hookman legend that we're familiar with today as a cautionary tale to scare youth into not committing necking and hanky-panky. <laughs> Similar to how there are countless folklore stories I'm sure you're familiar with and the listeners are that are used as allegories for, see, look what happens to those who don't do the right things. The bloody hook reminds me personally that the scariest thing out there are other human beings. True, true. Well, family, that's it for this episode. And with that, we will lay the Jacob's Haunting series to rest. 
Now, if you remember, Jacob and I had a conversation in our first episode that at the end of the series, Jared and I would take Jacob to one of the places we talked about during the series. We talked about a couple more ideas as well. Jacob and I decided to let our Facebook followers decide Jacob's fate. The poll will be posted later today to the Ravensville Podcast Network Facebook page and will continue for the next three weeks. When the poll concludes, we plan to take a little outing and introduce Jacob to a new experience. We'll make sure we keep you all up to date on all of that. So make sure you like and follow our Facebook page so you can vote. You can find our Facebook page by searching for Ravensville. I'm Ed Bolden. And I'm Jacob Garner. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you like what you've heard, make sure you join us next week to find out what Jacob thinks as we journey into the dark mysteries of the Sasquatch. I want to say thank you all to the listeners and the supporters of our podcast for all of the love. I'm actually very, very grateful for the positive feedback that we've received and that there was enough of a groundswell of support to make me a permanent co-host of The Cauldron. I'm actually very honored, and I really appreciate it. So thank you very much. Well, Jacob, we love you. Oh, I love you guys, too. Now, family, you adults have a few chores to do. If you haven't already, go on over to ravensvale.com and see about doing your chores on social media. Follow us on all the social media platforms that we've made available just for you guys. You can find Ravensville Cauldron Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Just search for the Ravensville Cauldron Podcast and make sure you hit the follow button to stay up to date with our latest episodes. And while you're at it, tell your friends about us, won't you? So until next time, family, see, see you, you soon. soon. The Cauldron is a production of Small Raven Media. Today's episode was hosted by Ed Bolden Greer with guest co-host Jacob A. Garner. Audio engineering and sound design by Nick Devan at Nikki D Sound. Copyrighted 2023. Small Raven Media. All rights reserved.